35 years ago, something like that, 1988, is that right, 1988, 35 years, 34, 35, something like that, is my math right? The number one song on the pop music charts was to some people an annoying little tune with this title, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It started with a whistle. It, it was all a cappella. There was no instrumentation. And it started with a whistle. Something like that. And then a man would come on with a, 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 a fake Jamaican accent and sing along to the reggae rhythms. Don't worry. Be happy. It was a phrase popularized by Mihir Baba, an Indian spiritual master who had developed a sizable American following prior to his death in 1969. It was a phrase and not a saying because in 1925, Mihir Baba ceased speaking. He claimed to be an avatar, a, a, a physical incarnation of God, whatever his version of God was, and he said something to the effect that because humanity had ignored God for so long that God would stop speaking. And so he, being the avatar of God, as he claimed, stopped speaking. And from 1925 through most of the rest of his life, he did not speak verbally. He, he communicated with a, an alphabet board and writing and things of that nature. But one of the things that he would say or send to his Western followers was this phrase, don't worry, be happy. And in 1988, the jazz musician Bobby McFerrin used this phrase to write the song that reached number one on pop music charts. And he said he thought it was a good life philosophy in four words. Don't worry, be happy. Bobby McFerrin is very optimistic in this song because some of the problems that he talks about in the verses uh, would be enough to put anybody out of business. Um, he talks about uh, a person who's lost his bed, has no cash, has lost his girlfriend, and his rent is late, and all of these problems that would quite honestly make a wonderful blues song if you were so inclined to sing the blues. But instead, Bobby McFerrin took all of these problems and wrote Don't worry, be happy. Now, it might be a good philosophy if simply by taking this action, it made our problems disappear, right? But this is baseless, groundless, to simply close your eyes to the reality of life and plaster on a fake smile and say, don't worry, be happy, man. Last week, we looked at the aspect of kingdom security where people find 
security, they find purpose and meaning in illusion. They either, through hypocrisy, in other words, they put on an act and pretend to be something they are not, either in order to please people or in order to please God, or they, they somehow try to manipulate the system. You remember we talked about the Lord's Prayer and how people pray the Lord's Prayer in a superstitious way, or they're, they're praying. Jesus said, don't be like that. Don't pray like the Gentiles do. They believe that they will be heard for their much speaking. It's a superstitious way of praying. Continuing the reading in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus next warns against the pursuit of security through riches. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of the places I've always found fascinating is junkyards. My dad is a, a kind of a backyard mechanic, and he's always done what he could to, to work on and fix our own cars. And so I remember from a very young age going with him to junkyards to find parts for cars that he was working on. And uh, what's interesting about junkyards is, for one, how much you can find that's still good. But also there is a sad side of that. And that is this, that every car you see in a junkyard was once prized and in many cases loved by its owner. And yet it ended up bent and broken and smashed and useless and broken down just in a pile of junk. We could say the same thing about yard sales or thrift stores. Some of you like visiting those places, and that's fine. As they say, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But let me give you an equation about this, a mathematical equation. And that is this, treasure plus time equals junk. One day, every possession that you own and now treasure, it's just junk waiting to happen. This beautiful instrument, I, I, I really took some time contemplating this this morning. No joke. I thought about this beautiful instrument. And I think, really? But as much as it pains me to say what is so meaningful to me personally, will, will one day 
end up being meaningless to the rest of the world, and quite honestly, it won't mean anything to me either. And I'll tell you why. I'll explain it to you this way. Do you know if you had bought one share of IBM stock in 1915, do you know how much you'd have now? Nothing, because you'd be dead. And that's the point. You see, the trouble with treasure is our hearts follow the things that we treasure. And entanglement with what is earthly and apparently so valuable in our eyes now, it just it doesn't make sense. Let me illustrate it this way. I, I don't know. Motel 6 used to be nicer than it is now. It's probably, probably none of you would want to stay in a Motel 6 now, or you wouldn't admit to it if you did. But, but just, just for the sake of illustration, imagine that you had to spend a night or two at the Motel 6, uh, or it, it could be the, the Super 8 or even the Hilton, whatever name you want to put in there. Imagine that you had to spend a couple nights there and you, get, you check in, and you get your key, and you walk into the room, you open the door, and you say, ugh. You look at the decor, and the decor just does not suit your fancy. The pictures on the wall you think are ugly, and so you say to yourself, man, I've got to do something about this. So you go down the street to the Hobby Lobby, and you get your card, and you load it up with beautiful decorations that suits your fancy and is just the right colors and, and all of that. Maybe you drive from there down the street to, a, to an art gallery, and, and you look at some beautiful paintings, beautiful pictures, and you purchase those, and and then you go to, to the Best Buy to upgrade the electronics there because the television or whatever, it doesn't, you know, doesn't do everything you want it to do. And then you could stop by the Bed Bath & Beyond for softer towels and nicer bedding. And then you go back to the Motel 6 and take all of your stuff in and redecorate and put in the new fancy electronics and the, and the softer towels and the bedding and all of that would that be a sensible thing to do not at all why because you don't expect it to be there for long a couple nights at most so it doesn't make sense to invest your, your time and your energy and your effort in this place, this motel room, where, where you're going to just be moving on in a matter of a day or two. Yet so many times this is exactly what people do in this old earth. We invest our time, we invest our, our treasure, our energy in making this world, our life in this world, everything that we want it to be, everything that we hope for it to be, when out of the totality of our existence, it's about this much. It's about this much. And what Jesus is saying here is don't wrap your eternal heart around earthly treasures because it doesn't make sense to invest too heavily in this world. Moving on, we told you last week that one of the major themes of Matthew chapter 6 is this theme of security. And some people seek it in other people. 
That's what the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 was all about, where last week we talked about those who practice their righteousness in order to be seen by others. They give to the needy, and the tr- trumpeteer goes before them and talks about, or you know, draws attention to their giving. Uh, all of this stuff, and what they're doing is everything. They're they're doing their goodness in an effort to try and please people. It's a performance. They find their security. They find their purpose, their meaning, their fulfillment in people. Other people find their security or their meaning and fulfillment in in their treasures. Either their accounts their retirement accounts or their possessions or or whatever. It's surprising what is meaningful to people. It's like the story of the little boy who got his hand stuck in one of his mother's expensive vase. Vases? Vase? How do you say that? Vase? Is that what it is? Okay. I don't know how to say it. Um, you know that story? He got his hand stuck in there and couldn't get the hand out. They tried everything, couldn't get the hand out, and finally they came to the conclusion the only thing they were going to be able to do is break the vase. So they broke the vase, and come to find out, the little boy had his hand clenched in a fist. Dad said, son, why didn't you just open your hand? If you would have opened your hand, you could have slid your hand right out. But inside his hand was his penny, and he did not want to turn loose of his penny. So his hand was stuck, and that's the way we are with our treasures in this life. We find security. Some people find it. But friends, let me tell you this morning, if you pursue security and meaning in either or in both, either in people or in your treasure, whichever source, your fate is fixed. Your fate will be anxiety and worry. And that's what Jesus goes on to talk about in the remaining portion of Matthew chapter 6. Verses 25 through 34. And he essentially says in these verses, don't worry. Don't worry. In fact, three times in these verses, there is a therefore. In verse 25, in verse 31, and in verse 34. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. Three times in this short passage, I think Jesus is trying to get us a a message to tell us, to encourage us not to worry. Don't be anxious. Now, this is not a groundless, baseless piece of advice like the song by the jazz musician that we told you about a few minutes ago that seems to suggest you can just close your eyes to all your problems and and whistle a happy tune and everything will be fine. That's not what Jesus is saying. Let's look for just a moment at what worry is. 
Worry, someone has said, is a disproportionate level of concern based on an inappropriate measure of fear. That's a good definition. Think about that for a minute. It is a disproportionate level of concern based on an inappropriate measure of fear. In other words, I'm more concerned than I ought to be about things that make me fearful, but I really shouldn't be that fearful. That's worry. Jesus used the same word when speaking to Martha in Luke chapter 10, verse 41. You remember when Jesus came to visit Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and, and Mary was just so thrilled to be able to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him teach, and and Martha was frustrated and aggravated and said, Lord, I'm doing all the work. Tell her to get up and get busy and help me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. It's the same word. Now, what I need you to be assured of is, one, Jesus is not suggesting idleness or passivity to us. You've heard me perhaps use this definition for peace, that peace is when we are not striving to make good things happen, neither are we striving to avoid bad things, but we are simply resting. And someone said to me, that sounds like passivity. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not talking about being passive. All, we're, all I'm talking about is outcomes results. We do have responsibilities, things that we ought to give attention to, things that we ought to take care of. However, when it comes to results, results are out of our hands. We can't make good things happen, neither can we avoid bad things in all circumstances. But we simply do what we can where we are responsible, and the outcomes we leave in God's hand. So Jesus is not suggesting idleness or passivity. What he's talking about is this. Worry usually concerns what is outside of our control after we have done what we can. Let me say it again. Worry usually concerns what is outside of our control after we have done what we can. If you're worried about the plants in the garden that they won't grow because of the weeds... Don't just sit around and worry about it. Get out in the garden and start pulling the weeds. Amen? But if you're worried because there's not going to be enough rain, friends, there's nothing you can do about that. You could turn on the sprinkler, I guess. But at some point, you will reach the stage where you have done everything you can do. And it's at that point that we open our hands and we say, here, Lord, you take control of this situation. So what's wrong with worry? Why shouldn't we worry? Somebody said to a friend, you worry so much and your worry never does any good. And they said, yes, it does. Most of the things I worry about never happen. So in their mind, they were thinking they were accomplishing a lot by worrying. What's wrong with worry? Worry tries, me t tries to get me to live in a future that I cannot control. 
Worry tries to get me to live in a future that I can't control. In so doing, worry steals our joy and it chokes our dreams and it robs us of our future one moment at a time. Some people spend so much time either regretting the past or worrying about the future that they fail to live and enjoy the moment that they're in right now. Now, some of you need to hear this. Jesus hates worry, but he loves worriers. Aren't you glad? I am, because I tend to be a worrier. If you are a worrier, let me assure you this morning that these words are not meant to add to your burden. I don't believe Jesus gave us this message to add to our burden. You know, there's nothing quite like feeling bad about something. There's nothing quite like having somebody dump a load of guilt on top of that. You know, you're already feeling bad about it, and then they just dump a a boatload of guilt on top of it. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a blessing? No, not at all. (laughs) And I don't believe Jesus is giving us this message to add to our burden. I'm not suggesting simply that you should just have more faith. You know, we hear that in some circles. Well, you're just not trusting God enough. You just need to have more faith. Oh, friends, I believe, I believe every word in the Bible is true, but I believe it, it also that it balances itself out. I believe very much that these words are true, that Jesus tells us that we ought not to worry. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious about our provision or about our future, or about any of those other things. But when Jesus comes across a worrier, I don't believe that he he kicks them or dumps on a load of guilt on top of their worry. Because you see something else that the Bible says is that he knows our frame. He understands that we are dust. And the bruised reed he will not break and the smoking flax he will not I'm not suggesting that you should just have more, have more faith. This, I believe, is simply an invitation. An invitation from the Lord Jesus for us to stop trying to live out of our own resources. You see, that's what we are doing when we try to find meaning and purpose and security in people or in our treasures or whatever other means, whatever, when we're trying to do it and accomplish it ourselves. We're living from our own resources. But Jesus invites us to step into God's kingdom and begin living from His resources. Don't worry, friends. Don't worry because you are highly valued. You are highly valued. Look at verse 25 through 30. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. This, by the way, is probably the flowers, the lilies that Jesus was talking about. It's not the Easter lily like we know, but it was something like this, a, a kind, I think it was a, what we would call a poppy anemone. And uh, it, it was red, and I'm told by those who have been there that certain times of year there are places in, in Galilee, in that region, where the, the fields and the plains would just be like a red carpet from these beautiful, beautiful flowers. Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? You see, worry is futile. You are highly valued, so God will provide for you. You are highly valued, so you don't need to worry about changing or adjusting your appearance in correcting nature's mistakes. Jesus says worry is futile. Who by taking thought can add a single hour to a span of life? It's not going to happen. Don't worry because you are highly valued. Don't worry because of your faith. Don't worry because of your faith. You see, worry is a sign of little or no faith. Jesus says at the end of verse 30, where he says, Oh, you of little faith. And you might sit there and think, wait a minute, preacher, I thought you said a moment ago that Jesus is not pouring guilt on top of our worry. This, I believe, and, and Bible scholars tell us, is probably Jesus using a gently chiding nickname. As if he's saying, oh, you little faiths. You know, when, when will you learn to trust me? When will you learn to believe in me? He goes on to say that unbelievers' lives are often consumed with worry about provision and appearance. He says the Gentiles seek after all of these things. You see, unbelievers do not know the Father that we know. Verse 32 your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. And the message there is clear that just the awareness that our Father knows we need these things ought to be enough for us to relax and rest in His care and His provision. Don't worry because... You are highly valued. Don't worry because of your faith. Don't worry because it adds the trouble of tomorrow to today. Notice verse 34. Jesus says, Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If we could hear this in its original language and its original cultural context, we would hear that this is Jesus making a little funny, making a little joke. 
It adds the trouble of tomorrow to today. I used to feel that, that, that life ought to be easy. And I had this idea that if I could ever get things lined up just right in my life, physically and spiritually, and, and uh, you know, if I could ever get things lined up just right, that everything would just fall into place and life would be easy and, and everything would be okay. But you know what Jesus' prediction was for life? His prediction was trouble. There's going to be trouble today and trouble tomorrow. Life is not easy. Trouble, trouble both today and trouble tomorrow. And when you worry about the future, you are anxious about the future, all you are doing is adding the trouble of tomorrow to today's trouble. And Jesus says, you don't need to do that. You already have enough trouble today. Just worry about your troubles one day, one trouble at a time. And don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. A lady named Helen Malicote wrote this. I was regretting the past and fearing the future. Suddenly, my Lord was speaking. My name is I Am. He paused. I waited. He continued, When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. My name is not I will be. But when you live in this moment, it is not hard. I am here. My name is I am. Amen. Isn't that good? Don't worry because it adds the trouble of tomorrow to today. So, preacher, what am I supposed to do? I, I just worry seems like such a part of me, and I don't know what I would do without worry. I've talked to people with the, literally these kinds of concerns. If they don't have anything to worry about, they're worried about what's happening that they don't know is happening and they're trying to find something to worry about. What do I do? Well, Jesus gives us here an antidote to worry in verse 33, where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first. In other words, let it be what defines every aspect of your life. The kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God that defines every aspect of my life. It is Jesus at the center of my life, and that defines everything else about what I do and who I am and how I spend the hours of my day and how I interact with my friends and neighbors and even how I interact with those people that I don't like or those people that don't like me very much. Seek first the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, friends, the kingdom of God is simply God's activity and God's agenda. It is where what God wants to be done is done. You say, Pastor, what is your scriptural support for that? Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is wherever God wants done, is done. 
Every Christian in this world ought to be a little outpost of God's kingdom. Our area of influence and our, our territory where, where we have any say over what happens, over what we do, people ought to step into our world, step into our lives, individuals, and, and say, what's different here? And we ought to be able to tell them, well, this is, I live in God's kingdom. This is an area where what God wants done is done. And we pursue his kind of righteousness, his righteousness. What is his righteousness? We find it in chapter 5, verse 43 through 48, where Jesus talks about loving your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It is based on agape love, divine love. You see, the fact is agape love is the golden thread that is woven through the entire Sermon on the Mount that holds all of it together. It is this that Jesus spoke to the skeptics and, and said, this is the first and greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you get these two right, you can throw the rule book away. You won't need the rule book. Because you will, by nature, do everything contained in the rule book. I'm going to close with this. <clears throat> this is called I Worried by a lady named Mary Oliver. She writes, I worried a lot. Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Can I do better? Will I ever be able to sing? Even the sparrows can do it, and I am, well, hopeless. Is my eyesight fading, or am I just imagining it? Am I going to get rheumatism, lockjaw, dementia? Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing, and gave it up, and took my old body, and went out into the morning, and sang. Friends, we do not need to worry. We have a Heavenly Father who loves and provides. We find in Him our security, our provision, our meaning, our purpose, our hope for the future, everything that we need, everything that we want to be, everything that we hope to be, everything that we aspire in, for in the future. We find it all in our Heavenly Father. And we are invited to stop living from our own resources and to step into his kingdom and live from his resources. Amen. Let's stand together, please.